This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday time for our Zoomer squad. And the older demographic was front and center at the Oscars last night. 90-year-old John Williams became the oldest Oscar winner ever. And in a town notorious for ageism, specifically targeting women, both the winner for Best Supporting Actress, Jamie Lee Curtis, and for Best Actress, Michelle Yeoh, are over 60, with Yeoh exhorting us from the stage, never let anyone tell you you're past your prime. So does this reflect a change in society as a whole? Is it leading a change? Is it just lip service? And a date for the federal budget has been announced. It will come down in less than two weeks. What does CARP want? In the commentary from Ottawa Insiders, I don't see anything specifically for our demo. If you'd like to weigh in to the conversation, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now, time for the Zoomer Squad. And now I'd like to welcome Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. And today we also have Liz West uh, sitting in. She's going to be filling in for me over the Passover holiday, and auspiciously, Liz used to be an entertainment reporter when we worked together at City, so uh, it's a good day for her to be here with us as well. David, so the Oscars uh, reflecting a change, leading a change, or nah? I think it's ref- I think it's more reflecting than leading. I think they go where the material is, and they're trying to get box office, and they're trying to sell tickets. And uh, it's good that they're not restricting, uh, you know, by age. But I think it is a part of a wider trend because if I take a look at the binge watch shows uh, on on that are streaming, if I look at something like Yellowstone, I don't think Kevin Costner's twenty seven years old anymore. And there's so there's a lot of older uh, people, if I can use the word older in quotes. So it's good. I think that's all good. And uh, but I don't I don't see uh, Hollywood as particularly leading edge in this. I think they're just going with uh, with the flow. Do you agree, Peter? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's hard to argue that they're, <clears throat> you know, um, they're leading, you know, you know they're, they're sort of cutting edge because they're not. They never have been. They've always been out there reflecting what's going on in society, I think. And uh, but but the, the nomination of John Williams is amazing. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not enough of a, uh, you know, a, a music connoisseur to understand if he's still as good as he was like 40 years ago. But he's 91. And um, I, I don't think that's a token um, that's sort of like tr- trying to make any statement or anything. He's 91 and he was nominated for an award. And I, I, that just blew me away last night. Hmm. Liz, good time to bring you in. Hi, Liz. Oh, I can't resist getting in on this conversation. (laughs) I think what David said is right. Like, it's an aging population, so that shows up in every industry, including uh, Hollywood. I would say that Everything Everywhere All at Once is the one film uh, that had the uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, Best Supporting Actress, and the Best Actress wins. They both had older actors, as well as James Hong was in the film. He turned 94. Um, so so there, that movie in itself was a little bit different. I don't agree that Jamie should have won. And I would hate to think anybody's getting an award because of their age. So I don't know if it's a change in Hollywood, uh, but I think that after uh, what Michelle uh, said when she took the award home and said, no, don't let anybody tell you you're past your prime is a great message. And maybe there will be more scripts 
for older women and and older men as well. And John Williams, he's in a category by himself. I it's mean, amazing, isn't it? Right. Well, so, I mean, the, the interesting thing there, so the Jamie Lee Curtis thing, I mean, uh, they made her look older and not as good as she looks in real life. And, you know, Peter, you said that uh, Hollywood is reflecting a change. I, I think they're kind of in their on their own planet. Uh, and, well, that movie and was for sure. <laughs> yeah, but in I mean, in general, and I think they're kind of more sexist, more ageist, and possibly more racist. I mean, they there has been mm-hmm. over the last few years a lot more people of color and and minorities represented, and that was another aspect of everything everywhere that the Asian actors, uh, you know, they could hardly believe they were having their moment. Yeah, that was the first time an Asian woman had won. That that category of best actress. I mean, we've only just had women winning director awards at the Oscars for what the last decade. So this is all fresh and new. But uh, it all depends who's making the movies too. Look at Sarah Pauly. So okay. she cast uh, a lot of women, a story about women. She won for best screenplay. So obviously, you know, the more women you get in the business, maybe the more roles and and uh, we'll see for them. But can yeah. I can I just put in a not a contrarian thing, but a historical thing? If you go with what the product is and you look in any given year, what movies got made? Now the to me the prejudice if it is there is that the green light stage. Is that can we even are we even going to shoot this thing? No, we're not because we need more the men are in control or whatever, 30, 40 years ago. But I mean Art Carney won an Oscar when he was in his young sixties, like mm-hmm. thirty plus years ago. Um the the director's He's a man. Sorry? He was a man. I'm talking about age. I'm yeah. responding to the Zoomer thing. Okay. Uh, uh, there have been older, 50-plus people. If that's who's doing... The real story for me about Zoomers and about winning is not the awards, that so many people are still productive at that age mm-hmm. and are getting mm-hmm. an number. They are writing things. They are acting in things. They are mm-hmm. producing things. And to me, that's the more interesting thing is that the... The young starlet glamour segment is always there and still there, but there seems to be more stuff happening uh, uh, with the older age groups between streaming stuff and TV stuff and Hollywood stuff. I think there's just more product that is reflective of the talents of the people that keep going and going and, and going. And David, I, I think one thing is that people can get old while waiting to make a film because it takes years and years <laughs> yeah. to get something produced. Sometimes people die before their film comes out, sadly. Yes. Well, <laughs> Sorry, everything, I'm everywhere laughing. Start, happened. everything everywhere started in, I think he said, 207. They first yeah. conceived of the idea. Yeah. It would take at least that long to make a film like that. I, I'm in awe of the the mind behind that script. Bill, uh, do you have a view of this? Well, certainly, uh, I agree with with everything that's been uh, been said. I don't think that Hollywood is leading. I think they're they're following a very slow trend. There's still a tremendous amount of ageism, and as we have more, uh, you know, it, it's almost uh, a reverse. As we have more older uh, people uh, succeeding in their field and being noted for it, somehow it's considered as something special and and unusual when, uh, when in fact, it, it shouldn't be because people are being productive as they get, uh, as they, as they get older. So I, I think it's a very interesting uh, 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 occurrence that's happened, but I don't think it does anything to help the overall trend for, uh, for ageism, uh, across Canada and indeed the world. Do you agree? Uh, I, I get what he's saying. Exactly. You know, what I was thinking about when you were talking, Bill, is how um, Michelle Yeoh and Jamie Lee Curtis are also two actors that haven't had cosmetic surgery. They're aging naturally. And I think that that is also a little different for what, you know, we don't mm-hmm. see every day in Hollywood and it's a great message, but uh you know, it's, it's that, that's why we're debating this, right? I don't, yeah. don't think there's an answer to this question. We will have to wait and see what happens next year and so on. Well, and, and the whole cosmetic thing, uh, it is interesting. I mean, sometimes you see these Hollywood stars and like, who is that? Uh, and they're unrecognizable. Madonna is a great example and not in a good way. Yeah. 
Well, Tom Cruise, uh, don't they DH him in his films now? Like they they build that into the budget, Absolutely. don't they? You know what? They build that into the budget for a lot of films. Do they? Yes. Yeah, okay. Where someone is uh, uh, in post-production, you can remove wrinkles, add hair, and do all sorts of things. I don't know if you're familiar with the series yeah. Wednesday starring Catherine oh. Zeta-Jones, okay. who looks nothing like Catherine Zeta-Jones in the series. It's like her, she has not one wrinkle or one anything on her entire body, but she does. But you can't see it in the no. series. Right. And I sometimes wonder, it's an, a whole interesting... I want that, actually. Well, you know, <laughs> we sometimes, you know some, sometimes I wonder when I see pictures, uh, you know, mm-hmm. oh my God, has that gorgeous woman done this to her face or is it just in post? Because I don't think it usually looks good. Yeah, it looks on. It looks you don't look like yourself. Yeah, and, and you know it's this. I encountered this. There, there was uh, one the one year where, in return for giving a speech, I got a photograph from a very fancy LA photographer, and he just sent it, mm-hmm. and I was thrilled when I saw it. But then I thought, who is this? Doesn't look, <laughs> and it's still in use. I am getting a new photo shoot sometime soon, which I hope may look like. But it's like the yeah. first reaction is, wow, I look like a 25-year-old babe. But it's like, who is that? Mm-hmm. Well, the worst part is when then you meet someone in person who's only seen your photo. You know the danger of that. When they've only yeah. seen you by photo and then you walk in the room, eventually you, you have to see people face-to-face <laughs> in lighting. And they'll go, oh, you don't look anything like your photo. <laughs> oh, do they say that? Well, dun, dun, dun. There was this whole thing about some new filter. I think yeah. it's on we, fe- we featured it. Eva D and I featured it. In fact, we posted a photo on the Zoomer Radio Facebook page of her and I with the filter. It is, you know, move over Kim Kardashian. We are here. Yeah, it basically takes your face and changes it so you look like, like you with all the you, work. It gives you like uh, chipmunk cheeks and and it lips, cheeks, up your lips, everything. Do you th- did you think you looked good like that? Um, for a minute, yeah. <laughs> I did. I, I, Chris, Chris did it. Did it for me too, and it was, it was ridiculous. It was on a day when I had TV makeup on anyway. Yeah, and it was like, I mean, I don't know. I think um, um, the eyelashes sort of would have weighed my whole face down. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know you guys. Sorry, we're leaving you out of no, the. No, no, no. Actually, in the next issue of Zoomer. There's a um, an article on beauty filters, yeah, and uh, and, and yeah. it has Madonna and Tom Cruise in it, and it a lot of what you were talking about was like a lot of um, a lot of stars won't post now so yeah. on social media without running it through a filter first, right? So yeah. so it it raises the argument about you know okay they're aging in Hollywood, but are they they're not even aging, are they? Like they're exactly yeah, outwardly they're not aging. Because well, at least they don't have to go under the knife for that. But uh, again, it changes standards, and I think a lot of it right. just yeah, looks think, so bad. Right. I think the uh, the debate or the counter the counter trend between those that do it and those that don't do it is healthy. I think that that's mm-hmm. I, I like that kind of action. Okay, so the technology exists to transform you completely. And should you do you do I step out of my role? It's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to play an avatar the. Uh, the, the way the, the new avatar and I'm going to turn blue and that's fine because yeah. they're making me into a different creature but off camera do I uh, do all these anti-aging things or do I let it go and I think it's a great debate I think it's a well, I, I, there's also um, something to be said for you know moderation that if yeah. you do a little bit and you yeah. kind of still look like a yourself and uh you know, something that's not preternatural, but it, this is, I mean, it is kind of weird. And if, if the only place you're interacting is virtually, then I guess it doesn't matter that much, but you've got that thing where people see you in person and Eventually, the jig disappointed. Is up. Eventually, the jig is up. But I will mention that, you know, we didn't always have HD. Prior to HD, everybody looked a little better on camera. There was a little fuzziness to the whole thing. And yeah. then HD was introduced. And you can literally see more on an oh, yeah. HD yeah, yeah. screen than you can in real life. Like, I can see more of your pores and hair, like every wrinkle on your face when I see you on a screen. But it used but to I add 10 pounds to it still does, doesn't it? That's why I don't all, the, think all so. the, the actors are paper thin. 
I don't know. They look paper thin on camera too. Yeah, I know. Which means you know how thin they are in real life to look thin on camera. No, I don't. I don't think it still does. No, no. I have to get that lens. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, uh, I think we've we've uh, we've exhausted the cosmetic conversation here. Uh, Let's uh, let's talk about money. Uh, Bill Van Gorder, are there any particular asks for CARP? It's two budgets. There's an Ontario budget coming up as well. Yes, there there are, and there and there certainly are, and I agree with your introduction when you said we're not hearing anything very uh, uh, positive with regard to uh, older Canadians coming up uh, in the in the budget uh, in a couple of a uh, couple of weeks, and that's really yeah uh, uh, disappointing. Uh, there's there's a, a huge area around seniors' financial security that's really concerning our CARP. Our members worried about whether or not they're going to outlive their money. There's control and uh, of the uh, the banks and the way they treat uh, their customers. There's concerns about uh, investments and the risk uh, that's there to uh, investors and older Canadians. There's the lack of uh, financial support that's come from the federal government. They keep uh, they keep repeating the the pittance of money that's come through in the last uh, few years, and and it's becoming almost uh, if it wasn't so serious, laughable to seniors to hear that happening. And they they do that with everything, though. Yeah, Re- very announce and reannounce. They, they they do, but that's it's really gone. People are angry now. Uh, David did a focus group uh, uh, a little while ago where we were talking about this topic with CART members. And for the first time, we noted real anger, not just concern, not just complaining, but but uh, real anger the way they feel they're being uh, they're being treated. And one of one of the the, the basic things that is a is a concern is uh uh, the federal minister of seniors, the Department of uh, uh, Seniors, the youngest cabinet minister, by the way. Oh, that's hilarious! <laughs> yeah, yeah, seems to have no impact at all uh, uh, anymore. So yes, uh, uh, we're concerned that we're already uh, disappointed, and and we're working with our uh, uh, with our members and our chapters across the country to make sure that the elected politicians hear this. Uh, uh, no matter what the uh, announcements are, the budget is only a is only a plan. There's still an opportunity to to change in in regulation and the and the passing of bills, and that's where CARP's going to be focusing. Uh, David, uh, tell me a bit more about those focus groups. I mean, to me, honestly, what it looks like is that uh, politicians of all stripes are simply courting a different demographic. Um, you know, you've talked before about just throwing seniors, like treating uh, treating older people as all kind of frail and, uh, you know, throwing a few bones and just assuming that, uh, you know, first of all, they will vote as they always have and forget about it. Completely true. Um Two problems that our demographic is expressing in these groups. One is they're fed up with every level and every party because there's a disconnect between political platforms and execution. It used to be, if only I would vote for the right. My platform has ABC. His platform has DEF. I'm right. He's wrong. Yes, you are. No, you aren't. And the votes get voted. If only we can find the right policy. Now... The right policy is meaningless because you can't execute. And the, the anger comes with the frustration of everything in politics seems to be optics, announcements. There's no budget anymore. There's a budget every single day of the week. They're announcing something new, some new intention. No, they're announcing some new, something old usually. Right. <laughs> well, they're calling it new. Okay, And they're just moving the pieces around so as to look busy, busy, busy. But when you look at the outcomes... They aren't there. So our group, if you will, which have been through many more election cycles than the younger demographics are just, look, I've seen all this before. I've listened to all this before. I've heard all these promises before. All you're doing is moving the same money around and redressing it up again and shifting it over here and declaring it over there. When are we going to see some actual outcomes? 
And it's the outcomes that are bothering people because of two things where I think the politicians are making a big mistake. I might be out on a limb here. One is they don't understand the importance of execution. And two is the people doing the aging, the dominant age group now are baby boomers. And baby boomers as a generation are very type A. They're very... Uh, workaholic. They're very results-oriented, keeping score, seeing how you did. They're not in love with um, platitudes, and they can't be put off as much by sloganeering and posturing. And you have a political system, including the civil service, that's 100% devoted to posturing and performance art. And you have an audience that's waiting for results. And that clash is what's producing this friction. Yeah, but where do they go? I mean, Peter, one of the things that struck me, and I see uh, myself uh, and our show is kind of representing of the demo. So there are some people that still, uh, I wouldn't say court us, but definitely want to be part of our conversation, and some people who don't. And so there's the liberal postur- posturing, and you'd have a lot of uh, older people who naturally tend to be conservative going for conservatives. Now, Pierre Poiliev used to be on the show all the time. We can't get him on for love of money. And when I see what he's doing, his whole thrust seems to be to get this younger generation. And it's like he doesn't even want to be seen with us. Yeah, kind of like... um you know, in our magazine, you know, car companies don't want to advertise because they don't want to be seen as the older driver's car, right? Like Buick won't advertise us because that's your dad. That's, that's that, your dad. That is that is car, right? no grandpa, right? But but they don't want they don't want that association. So maybe Paul is thinking the same thing. He doesn't want to be the, you know, because the conservatives have always have always had the reputation of just catering to to older voters. So he he wants to maybe break that, uh, you know, th- that stereotype and and by not coming on your show. That's the only reason I can think about, you know, other, like uh, I, I can't imagine why he wouldn't come on for publicity. I can, know, I can offer a voters, possibility you know? Go ahead. because uh, like from what I've learned, you know, a candidate uh, doesn't spend an extra second talking to someone they already know is going to vote for them. Okay. So if they feel that they've got a certain um, group of people locked up, they will not waste their time. They're only looking at the voters that they can sway. They will not talk to people that will not vote for them. So it's just it's a matter of who's who's uh, available to be brought over to his camp. Who can he sway to vote yeah. for? Uh, Pierre Polyev, and if it's the younger voter who hasn't maybe got a uh, where doesn't wear a hat and as feeling you know freewheeling and open minded, then that's where he'll spend his time and and money and effort because he he knows it's a waste otherwise. And and uh, just to remind people, Liz ran for municipal office mm-hmm. twice, yeah. so she knows where from she speaks. But but don't you then run the risk of alienating people? It's like you know you get to a certain point, and if you encounter in whatever sphere somebody who's not even going to return your call, like I, you not know, even you know the thing is, how many people are going to switch uh, change parties, especially later in life. Like generally, people become more stuck in their ways the older they get. What would it take that to ages? push someone? It's, no, it's well, no. It's I'm speaking. Untrue. Is it spectacularly untrue? So someone's going to switch from being uh, NDP to conservative, or even liberal to conservative the because of the percent- they don't get a call back. The well, pre- no, for no, all no, kinds of reasons. Because they don't know. That's fair. Because they don't know that he's not returning your calls. I mean, no, you no, know no, no. I mean, don't. if 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 you yourself feel that you're not being addressed, right? And uh, I mean, yeah. look at the progressive conservatives here. They they got all these unions on board. That's a sea change. Yeah. They, they the aren't biggest, all young the, unionists. The, you know, I can't look. He may be correct because the election might be two years away, and he may say, "I'll." Come back. Some of them might be dead. I'll come back and visit you closer. But I want to tell you that the biggest mistake he's making, if that's the mistake, he's assuming that age is the determinant. The 65 year old plus voter of today is not the same as the same age group of 10 years ago. And they absolutely don't get that. And so, but you're saying that that person is willing to change parties. 
I'm saying if, that if you if look at the one. if you look at the political loyalty of this age group and yeah. how much is locked and loaded mm-hmm. and how much of it is up for grabs, much more of it is up for grabs to begin with. The number who are card carrying liberals, card carrying conservative, leave me alone, I'm never gonna change is small relative to the larger group that's in play. But okay. even in even in yeah, the older age group, David. Number. There's, there's, yeah. there's, there's 7 million Canadians who are over the age of 65. And they're in play. They're not all locked and loaded. Just by magic, I hit 65, so I'm never no, going to no, no. change I just, my but I think party affiliation. That's not No, true. no, but I think the older you get, your, your, uh, what matters changes. We know that what matters changes. And through experience, you're not, you're not viewing this as a, I need to learn about the parties and what they represent. You kind of know, you know who you voted for and what's the alternative? It's no, always no, going to be, what's the alternative? I don't care what they represent. It's can they deliver? And when I look at the landscape today, it's not the same basis as our parents and grandparents of which party do I favor. It's who can produce because nobody's producing. But And it can also just be, we got to throw the bums out. Yes. Bill? Uh, uh-huh. What have you found in terms of uh, access for CARP? Do you, do you find that there's some kind of uh, potential generational switch underway? I absolutely agree with uh, David. That's what we're hearing, that the, the, uh, the older generations now are not the same. They don't, uh, uh, they don't vote for a long family and historical lines they're looking much more uh, closely remember they they uh, they were that younger demographic not uh, many years ago when they began to be turned off by what government is doing so yes they are uh, they are willing to uh, change and they're not happy with uh, what's happening now I think we, and we and we hear that from them all the all the time that uh, uh, they're they don't think that they're interests are being reflected at all by the people they used to vote for and now they're quite willing to change their votes to another party if if uh, or another candidate more and more of them of course are looking at the local candidate and ignoring the national and provincial parties and saying i'm going to vote for the person in my okay, you know, that i think will represent me best you know mm-hmm. bill uh, even though we're basically out of time somebody is on the line with exactly what you just said so marianne in toronto hi hi Thanks for uh, for taking my call. Um, I'm just uh, listening to what you're saying, and, and I'm 63, so sort of on the edge of the baby boomers, and I've never once um, voted for a particular party. I vote for the person who I think is going to be the most honest and upstanding and, and uh, do their very best to do what they say they're going to do. I know it's not an easy job, but, uh, you know, I, I the one who I just feel has the most integrity. And, you know, and that's really hard to find these days. And we, we need a balance between conservative and liberal. You know, there's no question. But, yeah, nobody's being honest these days, which is really too bad. But <clears throat> I just feel whoever in my gut seems to be the best person for the job is <laughs> not going to make Canadians look look uh, like idiots in the global perspective, you know, and that, oh. that we, we be respected as a country. That it matters to me, too. So, okay. yeah, I don't really care what party they come from. Okay, thank you, Marianne, for that. Uh, Just uh, proving what you guys have been saying. We are out of time, so I'm going to say thank you to Peter Mugridge, Bill Van Gorder, David Kravitz, and Liz West. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thanks. We're taking a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the latest bit of travel chaos, just in time for March break. Uh, Customers, passengers, uh, on Flair Airlines uh, got a rude surprise when 20% of that airline's fleet was seized, uh, wrecking their March break. We're going to talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Dozens, if not hundreds, of passengers were stranded right at the start of March break when four of discount airline Flair's planes were seized by its leasing company last weekend. Communication was lacking, and even if there are offers of refunds or rebooking at a later date, that doesn't help people who have bookings and plans right now. And 
If you can rebook with other airlines, it'll be a lot more expensive. People will lose hotel deposits, activity fees, not to mention the time they probably booked off work or whatever else they were doing. And this type of disruption seems to be a growing feature of the travel scene. So uh, what do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by John Graddock, a faculty lecturer at McGill University in Montreal and former exec with Air Canada, and Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure. Hey, guys, how are you? Good morning. Good afternoon. How are you today? (laughs) Okay, so let's begin with Marty. So we heard the usual complaints, stranded, no communication or talk to the bot. Uh, But uh, now they're saying they'll help people rebook. But if, if you had flights, hotels and everything for March break and suddenly you can't go now, I mean, what kind of recourse do people have? Well, I can do what I do best, which is the insurance answering. And I can tell you right now and have confirmed it with all insurers that if you bought trip cancellation, interruption, et cetera, there is a little exclusion in there addressing default of supplier, bankruptcy, seizure of plane or quarantine, not covered. So you are out of luck big time from that perspective. So wait a minute, you don't even get back what you originally paid, let alone the extra you'll have to pay? No. So from uh, from Flair's perspective, God only knows what's going on there with respect to how they're going to handle all these monies they received and couldn't deliver for. I can just say that it's someone taking out trip cancellation and interruption, which the whole world is doing these days for what they never would have believed would have been seizure of a plane. But it is not a covered condition. Uh, wow getting your money's back. Well, I'm I'm glad we now know and I'm certainly glad we're we're not booked to go anywhere. John Graddock, uh, what's your take on this is is it because maybe a discount airline the prices were too good to be true? Well, first of all, Marty, great news. Thank you very much. That just made my day. You know, <laughs> not very good news of course. Not at but, all. You know, you know when you when you you know, live by the sword, you die by the sword on this one. And, you know, Flair has done a, you know, has done a great job of positioning itself in the marketplace in Canada as, you know, the, the, the carrier that will get you off the couch and onto an airplane. And they're doing it by pricing. And, you know, at a certain point in time in your life cycle, you have to start making money and you have to pay your bills. And you have to keep your shareholders happy as well as keep your customers happy. It seems that Flair is failing on a number of those points. And this weekend was just an example of one where they failed on the supplier side, where, you know, if there's three things you got to worry about as a carrier is make your payroll, pay for your fuel, and pay for your airplanes. And uh, that, you know, the three, the, the three, you know, cardinal rules of running an airline and they failed on the um, on the ability for them to, to pay on time the leasing companies, and they pay the consequences on Saturday. John, I keep hearing different things because in their damage control is like, uh, oh, like we were only a tiny bit late, and oh, this is only a smart part of what we have to pay. Is, is, is that right? Was this a hyper-aggressive move on the part of the, the leasing company? This is, you know, for the leasing company to do what it did, this is not just a flash in the pan, oops, I'm late with paying the bill. Um, this is probably a protracted um, discussion or dialogue or conversation that the supplier might have had with Flair. And, you know, you don't pull, you don't seize assets, you know, because the guy's late for a day or so. It's subsequent to a number of conversations and potentially a number of previous late payments. I don't, I'm not aware of, but to me in, in, in business, you know, you have a conversation before you take action such as the lessor has taken. So I'm not privy to any of those conversations, but this seems to be, you know, an extreme reaction by the care, by the lessor, 
but I don't think it was done lightly. I think it was done with, you know, with, with due regard to conversation and dialogue with Flair and Flair did not live up to whatever agreements that they may have had with the lessor. Marty, uh, would you advise passengers now don't buy the cheapest fare simply? Yeah. Uh... Great, great question. Uh, I think there's a big word here and the word is optics. I think, and even close to home, my daughter who went to Florida this weekend left Thursday night on Flair. When she bought that ticket, which was so much less than the competition, she said, what is Flair? Like, am I putting myself at risk? And I said, you are not at all. They are an excellent airline, so on and so on and so on. Never, never knowing that this could happen. Funny enough, flight home was Air Canada last night only because that's the way it worked out. But I must tell you, there's going to be many people who are now going to think, should I book with Flair? And I am, of course, going to have to tell them that cancellation interruption insurance will not solve your problem. So you know what? Buyer beware. It's up to you. I think optically they better get the show all straightened out real quick or they could be in for a rough ride. You know, interestingly, about almost exactly a year ago, I took Flair to Palm Strings and it wasn't... uh, it wasn't entirely the price. They had a direct flight. I was told by people who had been on the airline, they because they have this rock bottom price, and they said, "No, you've got to buy some of these upgrades, or or you know you'll be in the hold." Uh, so I did. It was fine. Uh, you know, it was basic, but it was fine. But again, it wasn't, it wasn't just the price. It was, you know, the flight times were convenient. It was direct, all of the above. Uh, I mean, John Graddock, uh, how is this going to affect their business? Are, are, and, uh, what about paying back all these people? How are they going to do that? Well, you know, that's, you know, that's the question is looking at the track record that Flair has had in the marketplace with basically paying things like, APPR compensation uh, and rebooking and doing all the things that they should be doing to make sure that they're, you know, they've got a good reputation in the marketplace. Unfortunately, you know, the reputation is somewhat stained at this point in time. Uh, they've got a, a reputation of being slow uh, on repaying or either refunding and or paying compensation. Uh, so, so it, you know, it, it's not very good. So I think that, you know, the question would be, this is another, you know, risk element that you're adding to the flare puzzle and buyer beware. Hmm. Interesting. So we have a situation where Marty has clarified that you're not going to be covered if something like this happens. And uh, even if you buy the add-ons at Flare. And um, what have you seen, Martin? I mean, I also heard stories about people who... It used to be that even with a lower grade fare on, say, Air Canada, you could change with a fee and people saying, I didn't know I now can't change with a fee. I mean, how much extra, if something goes wrong or is delayed, do people end up having to pay? Great question. I mean, the problem is, even when you're purchasing that ticket, there's a flex fare, there's a tango, there's a this. I'm giving just an example. And if you clearly can read it and go carefully through things, you'll see that certain fares, which appear higher at time of purchase, do allow you a lot of flexibility. And I think that's the world going forward is these rock bottom prices that have zero flexibility are not necessarily the the attractiveness that you may have once thought they were. So the the consumer is getting smarter and they're realizing I'll pay $50 more. I'll pay a hundred dollars more to know that I can change it. I can take one bag free. I can do this. I think that's the new world we're going to be living in very soon. Hmm. And John Graddock, what does it, what does it mean for discount airlines in the States? The, the cheapest airlines also had, uh, real problems, especially around the snowstorm at Christmas and all of that. Yeah, I think that, you know, the, 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 the ULCCs, as we call them, like the spirit, the allegiance, um, you know, even the frontiers of this world, um, you know, have got, have gotten some problems over the, over the holidays. Um, probably nowhere near as bad as our friends at Southwest when happened when they when their system uh, crapped out on them over Christmas. Uh, but you know, they, flying today is is, is really it's, it's a risk prone you know activity. Uh, you never know. Uh, it could be the you know it could be a snowstorm. It could be a carrier that's got labor relations problems. 
It could be a carrier that's got, you know, things like lessor payments that are not due. So, you know, flying today uh, has got some, you know, a greater degree of risk associated with it. Um, and I think that, you know, as Marty said, you know, you've got to be really be understanding of what, you know, what are you buying and what's the reliability and the capability of the airline to protect you if you have a disruption on your flight. And, you know, the rule of thumb is that the larger the airline is, the better the chances they can protect your operation on that airline. Um, with the ULTCs that are out there now, it's, you know, you're risky because they only fly once or twice a week. And if they offer protection on their own airline, you're, you know, protected a week later, which may not be what you need. Well, Air Canada is not going to do any better than that. No, Air Canada is not going to do better than that because the flights are full. You know, spring break. They don't care. You, 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 if the flights are full, so you know, there's, no, there's no place for you to go anywhere on Air Canada anyway. If it happened in April or May, lots of room. But, you know, when the summer peak or in spring break, uh, there's, you know, the flights are full. And Marty can attest to that. It's a very, very busy travel season coming forward, and uh, it's going to be a pretty messy situation uh, come the summer if we have some disruptions as we had a bit last year. Uh, Marty, I'm going to give you the last word. So uh, what do you want to tell people who are flying? Well, it's quite evident that necessarily the lowest price is not always the most attractive. I must admit this idea of not paying creditors has come out of nowhere. We've come so far with COVID and the staff shortages and all these things, and now this gets thrown at you. So I think, you know, like anything else in this business, read the fine print, understand what you're buying, and be prepared if you are going with a discount airline. There are issues that could come as a result of it. None that I thought would be creditor-related, but having said that, you have to be smart about what you do. Okay, thank you so much, Martin Firestone and John Graddock. Bye-bye. Thank you. Okay, we're taking a break. Um, I don't think you can fit a nap in the break, but when we come back, we will revisit the debate over daylight saving time, switching the clocks. Uh, Are you kind of tired today? It seems, I think it's just hitting me. Anyway, we'll talk about it when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Are you tired today? Don't blame it on staying up late to watch the Oscars. Scientists have been telling us that this is just one of the harmful effects of springing forward to switch to daylight saving time. Some authorities are willing to switch here in Canada, but only after U.S. border states do the same. And the other question is, switch to what? U.S. Senator Marco Rubio says that the practice of switching the time is dumb, and he has a bill to go permanent with daylight saving time. Meanwhile, scientists say it is standard time that we should be embracing. So what do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Dr. Patricia Lakin-Thomas, Associate Professor in the Department of Biology at York University. Hello and welcome. Hi, Libby. It's great to talk to you. Well, great to talk to you again. So why is the spring switch worse than the fall switch? Well, in the spring, we're losing an hour of sleep. You know, we have to make the clocks jump forward. We lose an hour of sleep, so we're all a bit sleep-deprived. And we're also uh, switching our clocks away from what would be our natural body time. Our body wants to clue in to the sun, and the best time for us is when our social clock, the alarm clock, the clock on the wall, matches up with what the sun is doing. So when the clock says noon, the sun should be at the highest point of the sky. Uh, And we're switching away from that. So our bodies are going to be a bit out of sync with what our social clock is telling us to do. So we know in the spring we have increased rates of car accidents and workplace injuries. We have increases in things like heart attacks and strokes that are acute events. And that just happens for a few days right after the time change. And we don't get it in the fall because we're gaining an hour of sleep and we're moving our social clocks back to match up with the sun. So our bodies are going to be more in sync with what our social schedule tells us we have to do. 
Well, when we're in daylight saving time in the summer, I mean, the nice part of it is that it's it's light, really late, and you can do whatever. Uh, but I have read that uh, actually morning light is more important and better for you than evening light. Is that correct? That's exactly right. The reason is that our uh, biological clock, which is uh, the controller of that's located in the brain. It gets light from the eyes, but the clock on its own would run a bit slow. So we need light in the morning that speeds it up. It advances the clock, and that gets us in sync with the sun. The problem is that nice evening light in the summer that we like for activities is also shoving our clock later. So our brain thinks that it should go to bed later, and it's hard for us to go to sleep. We stay up late. And then in the morning, we've got our alarm clock going off. We have to get up, and we've lost sleep. Our body isn't ready for the morning. Uh, Our hormones, our stress hormones aren't increased to help us deal with the stress of the day. Our digestive hormones aren't ready to digest that breakfast. And our physiology isn't in sync with what the social clock is telling us we have to do. So unfortunately, what we love about daylight saving is that evening light in the summer, but that's exactly the thing that is causing us physiological problems by shoving our clock to be late and make us try to stay up late. Okay, let's take a call from Pat in Toronto. Hi, Pat. Hi, Libby. I think this is being totally overblown. Um if we go back to standard time, on June 21st, we would be getting, the sun would be coming up at 4.37 in the morning, uh, and it would be getting dark at 8.03. I mean, how many of us want to get up at 4.30 in the morning to enjoy the daylight? So, so that's one piece of it, but I think it's also being overblown. Uh, I worked for nine months in Indonesia. And the only difference between summer and winter was 15 minutes. So you have no concept of evening light. But I've also been to northern Norway. And if we think we've got a problem here, just imagine what they're dealing with. Up, And this is up 60 miles from the Soviet city of Murmansk. They're gaining or losing 12 minutes of daylight every day. So in five days, they've changed by an hour. So um, I'm sure we can deal with our three minutes a day of change, and I don't see a problem in, in with daylight saving. I mean, the benefits are so much greater than the potential um, cost of, of, of people being a little sleepy for a few hours or a few, few days. Okay, Pat, I'm going to ask Dr. Lakin Thomas to respond to that. Well, I certainly agree with you, Pat, that this isn't an issue for people who live in the tropics, and it's certainly not an issue for people who live in polar regions because they've got much bigger problems to deal with, as you say. This is just something that affects people in the temperate zone around where we live. So it sounds great in the summer to have daylight saving time, but we really need to think about what happens in the winter, and that's when the sun isn't going to come up until like 9 a.m., and here in Toronto, we're going to have people getting up trying to get to their jobs in total darkness, mothers trying to get their kids out of out of bed and, and into school when it's totally dark. And it's really in the winter that we feel those, those very negative effects of um, people struggling with a very late sunrise. Uh, and it's the people who enjoy a lot of leisure in the summer and like to go out in the evenings who enjoy daylight saving time, but not everybody has that leisure time. And we have to think about the population that's going to be most affected are those people with the essential jobs who have to get up in the morning, in the winter, the, the families trying to get their kids up to school. So there's no perfect solution. I agree with you that the sun comes up early in the summer on standard time. Uh, but it comes up really late in the winter on on daylight saving time. So on the whole, we think it's going to be best to keep the clocks um, synchronized with the sun. So when the sun is in the highest point of the sky, the clock says it's noon, and there's no perfect solution, but that's the one that keeps us closest to body time and social time matching up with each other. And uh, another thing that I was reading about was that 
this can really have a particularly bad effect on adolescents, on teenagers, because uh, uh, they need more sleep anyway, and uh, it's just going to mess them up more than it messes up the rest of us, correct? Teenagers are definitely different. So we all have what we call a chronotype, which means the time we prefer to go to bed and get up if we don't have an alarm clock, if we have a free day. And teenagers are biologically programmed to stay up late at night and get up late in the morning. Uh, this isn't because they're lazy or even too much screen use, although that makes a difference. But they have a biology that makes them want to go to bed late and get up late in the morning. And there have been really positive effects from school districts in some places that have just started school times later uh, when teenagers are really ready to get up, get to school and and, and work. Um, so in the winter, it's going to be extra hard on them because they already biologically want to get up later. And now we're going to make them try to get up even earlier. So what is the bottom line? So first of all, do you expect any of this to actually materialize? Because people keep saying, oh, we're going to change it. And then, I don't know, we've been having this conversation for a long time, it seems to me. Yeah, we have. Um, Both BC and Ontario have passed legislation so that at the discretion of the province, they can switch to year-round daylight saving time, but only when neighboring jurisdictions do it. I don't see why... They need to follow neighboring jurisdictions. We can talk to people who are an hour off from us. We do it all the time. Um, Mexico has made the choice to go to standard time year-round. They got rid of it. And remember, most of the world doesn't do this, doesn't do daylight saving time. This is something that's in Europe and North America mostly. So there's no reason why we can't go back to standard time. Uh, people are certainly talking about it. And uh, some places are making the right decision. So we just want to get the word out there that um, we can make a decision to get rid of the change and we can make the right decision to go to standard time year round. Okay. Final question very quickly. If the option is just to go to year round daylight saving time, are we better off keeping it the way we are? Switching twice a year instead of year round daylight saving time. That's a tough one, but, you know, I might go with keeping the switching twice a year because at least then in the winter we're on standard time. We'd have to deal with extra acute events uh, for a few days around the spring switch and the inconvenience of that. But at least then in the winter we'd be on standard time. Okay. That would be the lesser of two evils. Thank you so much, Dr. Patricia Lakin-Thomas. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.